0: If you have your Bibles, if you could turn to Colossians, and today I wanted to wrap up by actually going over your theme verse. I don't know if you guys knew this was your theme verse, um, but I believe this verse actually encapsulates the gospel perfectly, in terms of how to live out the gospel. What is the gospel? What has God done for us through Christ, and how are we to respond and live in light of the gospel in this verse? Uh, beautifully summarizes that. So I thought this would be a very appropriate text to close with. And the reason why I titled uh, today's sermon Gospel Living is because uh, as you kind of have been seeing the flow of thought of the sermons, I started off with having a vision test you know, gospel in focus, making sure you're focusing on the right things, making sure you see who Jesus really is and you're desperate for Him. And after you see who Jesus is, now He wants you to respond in different ways, He wants you to be a part of His church. And that's what gospel Sunday ministry is. He wants you to work and to build up the body, be a part of the development and maturity of the church. But he also wants you to go out and in your workplace or with your friends or with your family members, he wants you to go out and work with the gospel, use the gospel as a way to encounter other people, to bring them to Christ and share the goodness with them. And not only does he want you to use your time for the gospel, he wants you to use your money the gospel, which we talked about last night, and once you to use that precious commodity we all have, and to leverage that for the kingdom purposes instead of our selfish desires. And so today, what we're going to do is, we're, I'm trying to summarize it all up in the gospel to ultimately get to what God did for us, and how we are to do the same for others. All right, in other words, I'm looking at the relationships. How do we relate to other people with the gospel? How do we live out the gospel on a relational basis because if you don't understand what the gospel is and what the gospel has done for you, you're gonna have a hard time relating to other people or extending the gospel to them the way God intended you to. So um, Colossians chapter one, verses 21 to 23, I'll read the text verse and pray and we'll get into today's passage. Paul writes, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, Holy Father, as we um, wrap up our time here at this retreat, focusing on the gospel once again, I pray that we will be reminded of what you have done for us through Christ and that we will respond with faith and continue steadfastly to cling on to the hope of the gospel and to offer this same hope to every person in our lives. That we will live out the gospel in tangible ways because of what you have done for us. So I pray that the Spirit may do his work in our hearts to refresh our minds and our hearts, to re-instill a passion and desire for you and to go out from this day forward with a renewed sense of purpose and mission for your kingdom. Be with me now and I pray that my words will be your words and that I will be clear and that your words will convict our hearts that we would more, most importantly, respond and hear and do the word that you have given to us this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Now, to understand these verses, you have to understand the church in Colossae. Uh, the church in Colossae was very similar to our culture. It was a very metropolitan culture where different people from different backgrounds were coming together. And one of the things that was going on from the Christians in Colossae was that they were starting to mix their culture with Christ. They were starting to bring in their cultural background into the gospel. And they were getting a watered-down version of the gospel. For example, there are some people who came from a religious background like the Jews. And so they're used to following rules. You follow this rule, this rule, this rule, and that's how you climb up the ladder. You're on your way to God. And so they started to implement that in the gospel. They said, "Well, if you really want to be close with Jesus, you can't eat this. You got to do this. You can't. You got to do this holiday. Do this. Do this. Do this." There's a very legalistic mindset, and Paul attacks that in this gospel, in this letter, saying, "No, you don't get a closer connection with God through your obedience to a bunch of rules. You have a connection to God through Christ alone." Period. But then there are some people, the Gentiles, who are coming from a pagan background, where everything that they were hoping in was about experience. It's all about the experience, so they're all about the excess, hedonism, pleasure, and it is through your experience that you get a closer connection to the divine. And so some of them were bringing that into the gospel, and they are saying, well, if really, to really get you know close with God, you know, through Jesus, you have to have this mystical experience—something that you can't get, you know, through another way. Something you just have to talk to the angels or pray to the angels. And they had a lot of superstition that they're bringing into the gospel. So Paul here's purpose in this letter is to show us that all we need to receive God and to have a connection with Him is Jesus. You see, what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to get the culture out of Christ. And what I think, the reason why I think that's applicable for us is because many of us bring in our cultural understanding and experiences. And whether we realize it or not, we mix it with Jesus as like a cocktail drink. Well, Jesus is just is a He's all about you being a very straight-A student and successful in life, and that's what Jesus wants. So I'll have a closer connection to Jesus through my academic success. Or that's probably more our culture than Christ. Or Jesus I mean, he's a, he's a, he has a certain political party agenda. He's a Republican. He's a Democrat. Or Jesus is about the American dream. So if you really want to be close to Jesus, you got to be rich and famous and successful, then he'll really use you. you. see, all of us, whether we realize or not, have a subtle cultural mixing with Christ. And so what Paul wants to do is to help us take away our hope from the culture, take our hope away from our obedience to a bunch of rules, take our hope away from experiences, take our hope away from success, and to place our hope in Christ. Christ, pure Christ, and nothing but Christ. That is what we need in order to live out the gospel. And so there's two extremes that happened in the Colossian churches, and this is two extremes that I even see today. Some people... After they become a Christian, they completely withdraw themselves from the culture. Well, if if we shouldn't be like the culture, then culture is bad, so I'm not going to talk to anybody who are unbelievers. I'm not going to look at anything in the culture. We're going to stay in a holy huddle. We're going to go under a hut, and we're going to just wait and die and be monks, and then we go to heaven one day. Some people go to that extreme. Nothing is good in the culture. Don't interact with it. Don't have anything to do with it. But some people say, well, culture is great. This is where everything like this is. So they completely embrace culture without any discernment. And what Paul says is this. Instead of completely avoiding culture, you have to be a part of the culture. But also, instead of completely embracing culture, you need to be wholly and different from the culture. This is the way Jesus said it. You are in the world, but don't be what? Of the world. Right? Because I send you into the world, John 17, so that you may redeem the world or change the world through the gospel. And so for a lot of us, and some of us might have a tendency of just withdrawing and staying amongst Christians and not ever engaging with the culture of unbelievers. Some of us are completely fine with doing that, but maybe a little too much where we're not looking any different than unbelievers. Paul says the gospel, when you understand the gospel correctly, you'll have the proper balance. You won't go to one extreme or the other. You won't be too much in of the culture, but you won't be in the culture, but you will also be redeeming the culture. You will be saving the culture through the gospel. So that is why Paul is writing this letter. Because he wants to remind the Colossians of the gospel, of Jesus. Because some of them are going to one extreme or the other. Some of them are bringing their cultural background into the understanding of Christ. And so if there is one word to summarize the gospel for Paul, it is reconciliation. Do you notice two times he mentions that in the verses? If you actually look back at verse 20, it says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then verses 21 to 22, again he says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. What has the cross done for us? What has Jesus done for us? He has reconciled us to the Father through His body. Now, what does it mean to be reconciled? I want to explain what reconciliation means, because I think we might mix it up at times. Reconciliation is very different from forgiveness. Forgiveness is a one-way street. Forgiveness is is like if someone hurts you or does something wrong against you. Forgiveness is to let go of what they have done, to let go of your wrath, to let go of vengeance, and to not hold it against them anymore. You see, forgiveness does not depend on how that person responds to you. You are to one-way street, let it go. That's forgiveness. Reconciliation, though, is a two-way street. It's it's when a person offers forgiveness, but the other person receiving forgiveness is willing to change in order to have a relationship with that person again. Let me give you an example. Imagine if you're married and your spouse commits adultery against you. Now, you can forgive them, but that doesn't necessarily mean the marriage is going to stay intact. See, forgiveness means you're not going to hold it over them forever. You're not going to let that wrath burn inside of you. But reconciliation depends on how that person responds. Reconciliation depends if that person's going to change and no longer cheat on you. Reconciliation means that person also has to do, come and meet you and draw near to you to build up trust again with you. Do you see the difference? You can be forgiven, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're reconciled with that person. Right? I mean, it wouldn't it be smart to just treat a person without any changes if they haven't built up that trust. If somebody robbed you a bunch of money, you shouldn't leave your door open again for them to come and rob you again, right? You can forgive them, but reconciliation means that a relationship was restored. And the way that a relationship is restored is that the person receiving forgiveness responds appropriately. You see, what Paul is saying is that not only did God forgive us through the cross, which he did, but he's giving you an opportunity to be reconciled with him. You see, the cross forgives us of our sins, but when you actually trust in the cross, when you actually draw near to Jesus, when you actually hold on to the gospel, then you are reconciled. Then that marriage is saved. Then you are no longer enemies, but you are now friends. You see, God didn't just put up with our sins. God didn't just let go of our sins. He actually wants to rebuild a relationship that was broken. See, I don't know if you guys thought about it this way, but according to the gospel, all of us, all of us were enemies of God the minute we were born. We weren't just neutral to God. We didn't just need some forgiveness for some bad things. We were enemies of God. We were the cheating spouse to God. And the way He he forgives us and reconciles with us is through the body of Christ. You see, if you didn't know that, you actually didn't like God. You actually hated God. You were alienated from God. Look at what Paul writes in verse 21. He says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Do you notice the language he uses? We weren't neutral bystanders. We weren't just you know skeptics. We weren't well-intentioned unbelievers. We were hostile to God. We hated everything he is and everything he represented. And here's the reason why we don't like God. Here's the reason why my sons don't like God. Because God demands perfect obedience and none of us can be perfect. And so we get resentful instead of receiving grace. We get angry that he's an unreasonable dictator without realizing he's a loving father who wants to reconcile with us. You see, what the law does, it kills us in our sin. It exposes our sin. And a lot of times, what unbelievers do, what we used to do, is we look at the law and think, well, let me just work a little harder, then I can be acceptable to God. But the point of the law is not to make you try to work harder. It's to kill you in the law. It's to show you, you can't do it. You need reconciliation. You need Him to do the work of forgiveness. You need Him to offer you an olive branch. Because on your own, you can't reach God because you are hostile and alienated. Notice the two language hostile the mind, doing evil things. It starts in the mind. All of us have equal thoughts. Some is dressed up in different ways than others. Some might be dressed up in religious language, but it's still covering up pride, which is evil. God, does, God looks down on the pride, the haughty. Some of us don't come from a religious background, and so our evilness comes out of being free, self-sufficient, independence, don't tell me what to do. Whether you are a rule keeper or a rule breaker, all of us are doing evil constantly. We think evil thoughts. Why? Because we are all selfish. We're selfish. We even look at God and look at Him as a way to satisfy our desires. We look at Jesus as a means to our end and not the end Himself. See, evil or uh, hostile in mind leads to evil deeds, if you notice. He says, hostile in mind doing evil. See, that's the picture Paul paints about all of us. Not just some of the Jews before or some of the Gentiles. He says, every single person in this universe was born alienated from God. No connection to God. They might have gone to a church building. They might have done all the religious activities, but their hearts were disconnected from God. And the only way you can have a connection, the only way you can be reconciled, is if God reconciles you to Him. We can't earn forgiveness. We can't buy forgiveness. All we can do is receive forgiveness and respond to forgiveness for reconciliation. And so that leads to the first point Paul paints Now He talks about the process of reconciliation. He's not going to re-explain the gospel clearly. If you look at verse 22, notice what he says. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Now to fully see the process of reconciliation, I want to couple verse 22 with a couple verses from Romans. In Romans chapter 7 verse 4, Paul says that we have died to the law through the body of Christ. And then in Romans 8, 3, Paul says that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So if we bring those verses together in verse 22, we can kind of chart out how God reconciled us through Christ. And so I want to briefly go over that so that you can see exactly how the gospel unfolded. Here's the process. First, Jesus, oh, those are two verses, by the way. There we go. It says Jesus now represents and identifies with his people. See, reconciliation begins when God initiates it. We can't reach God, but God can reach us. And that's what Jesus did. As God, he became fully man, he fully identified with mankind. This is why Jesus got baptized, by the way. Did you know that? Like, baptism for us not only means it's a sign of us being forgiven and having a new life in Christ, but Jesus didn't have any sin, so why did he have to be baptized? It was a sign of identification. It was his way of saying, I am completely one of you. I am part of mankind. See, Jesus wasn't like a half man and half God where he just switched on the flip whenever he wanted. We saw Jesus got hungry, Jesus got tired, Jesus was stressed, Jesus needed help, Jesus prayed. I mean, we see all of the things he had, the human limitations, like we did. That's what Philippians 2 talks about, that he gave up the full authority of exercising his divinity for a temporary time so that he could fully identify with us. Jesus was completely man. But, we also know that Jesus is fully God. Because if you look back at Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, Paul just said in a few verses back that the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. He isn't just an elevated man. He isn't just a demigod. He is fully God. If you want to see the full picture of God, you look get Jesus, in other words. Everything that is true about God is seen in Jesus. If you want to know how merciful God is, look at Jesus. If you want to see how holy God is, look at Jesus. And so we see that Jesus is completely man and completely God. 100% man, 100% God. How does that work? That's 200%? I don't know. You can ask God when you go to heaven. But it is true that he's 100% man and 100% God. But here's, I don't know how it works, but here's the reason why it must be true. Because a man cannot die for your sins. Because he's just as guilty as you are. Right? I can't. If I go to the court of law and I'm guilty of something, I can't have my dog or somebody who is just as guilty of, me of the crime take my place and pay for the penalty, right? If I rob the bank with a friend, he can't pay the penalty for me. He's just as guilty. Humans are all guilty of sin. None of us are perfect. That's why Jesus had to be man. And Jesus had to be man because God cannot die. How can God die for our sins if he's God. Only if he takes on humanity. But Jesus had to be God as well. Because by being God, he was perfect and sinless and blameless. See, by definition, he couldn't just be a regular man. He had to be a perfect man. He had to fulfill the perfect requirement of the law. And so Jesus had to be both fully man, both fully God. He needed to represent us, represent us. He needed to die for us. But he also had to remain perfect in the whole process. And this is what it leads to, finally, the next point. The cross condemns Jesus in our place. That's what Romans 8.3 talks about. Jesus was condemned as if he were guilty of sin, even though he wasn't. See, he was a sin bearer. He was the Lamb of God. See, back in the Old Testament, the reason why they would have lambs to be sacrificed is that the Lamb was a way for the person to identify with that innocent animal saying, I'm placing my sins on this animal, so God, you judge this animal instead of me. That's what Jesus did. So on the cross, God treated Jesus as if Jesus had sinned. He treated Jesus as if Jesus was one of us. That is why God didn't withhold his judgment. He released his full wrath on Christ. And that is why when we stand in front of God one day, we will not be judged for our sins because of double jeopardy. It's already been paid for. Jesus already served the term. He already paid the price. You don't have to do it anymore. So when we stand in front of God, even though we know we're not perfect, God sees us as perfect because Jesus switched places, so to speak, with us. Now His righteousness is on us and our sin was on Him. We call this a great exchange of theology. There was an exchange that happened on the cross. Being man, He died, but being God, He took on the sins of mankind so that when He was judged, we don't have to be judged any longer. So that when we stand in front of God, he sees us as if we were Jesus, perfect without sin. And when he saw Jesus, he saw him as if he were one of us, guilty of sin. So what that led to is that those of us who are in Jesus by faith are reconciled to God. This is how reconciliation happened. Jesus did the work. Jesus became man. Jesus remained God. Jesus died on the cross. And anybody who identifies with Jesus now has his righteousness in their account. They have his obedience on their behalf. They have his advocacy for them. Jesus prays for his people. He is the great high priest. If you notice in verse 22 closely again, what does Paul say? He says he is now reconciled in his body, in Jesus. We are reconciled to God when we are in Jesus, when we identify with Him. That's the process of reconciliation, but this leads to the purpose of reconciliation. Okay, why did God do this? Why did Jesus go through all this trouble in order to reconcile us through His body? We'll look at verse 22. Here's the purpose. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. See, Jesus didn't just die to forgive your sins. Jesus died to transform you. He didn't want you to just be let off the hook for your sins. He wanted you to become more and more like Christ. See, the goal of reconciliation, the purpose is so that you will transform into the image of Christ. You will be conformed to His picture. See, I want you to look at the language again. It says holy and blameless. Those two words were used to describe unblemished animals that were set apart apart for sacrifices in the Old Testament system. See, when you sacrifice animals in the Old Testament system, you couldn't just grab any animal. You couldn't have animals with any mutation or disability. You have to find a blameless and a spotless lamb. You have to find one without any blemish. And so this is the idea that Paul is saying. Jesus was the spotless lamb. Jesus was holy and blameless. But now that you are in Jesus and reconciled to him, you are to become like him now. You are to become like a holy and blameless lamb. You are to imitate the person you are identified with. I mean, think about it like this way. If you were to join up with a college, and you go to college, um, let's say, they have a bunch of standards for that college. Now that you're joining in with one of us, you have to look and act like that. Right, or that's like a sorority fraternity. Now you gotta dress like us. Now you gotta follow these rules. Or you go to a company, don't they have rules of how you are to be identified with the company? Because it's not just about you. If you work for Google, you represent Google. Right? So there's a certain standard and expectation. We all understand this. When you identify with a bigger entity, you are to conform to that entity. And so what Paul is saying here is that the reason why we are reconciled to Jesus is so that we are identified with, which means we need to transform. Into his image. We need to become holy and blameless. And then he adds this phrase, above reproach. Above reproach means that no person could lodge an accusation against you. So if I were to sit down with your boss and ask them, how so-and-so as a worker? If you were above reproach, they wouldn't have anything negative to say about you. If I were to sit down with Pastor David and ask, how so-and-so as a congregant? If you were above reproach, you wouldn't have any accusation or negative things to say against you. If I were to sit down with your spouse and say, "How so is so-and-so as a spouse? If you're above reproach, there will be no impunity or anything they could hold against you. Do you see the standard? Do you see the goal of reconciliation? It's not just to be a little bit better. It's not just to go to a church a little bit more. The gospel is meant to transform you into the image of Christ. Because who is the one person in history who is genuinely above reproach? Jesus. Because I guarantee you, if we had an interview with everyone that knew him, Mary, Joseph, how was Jesus as a child? I mean, he cried when he was hungry, but never gave a temper tantrum. What? Amazing. Yep, that's true. Hey, James, the y- younger brother Jesus, how was Jesus as an older brother? You know, he always shared his toys with me, always gave me never got mad at me. He was very, very gentle. back. Wow. Disciples, how was Jesus? What was the one fact that you could say about him? Ah, he showed too much compassion to people when we wanted to kill him. I mean, it's a little, little much, right? We want to send fireballs down, but he says don't do that, right? So a little bit too compassionate, a little bit too merciful. So do you see the idea? Do you see the picture? Well, Paul is saying the goal, the purpose of reconciliation is to be like Christ. See, as God's children, we are adopted into the family, but we are to emulate the firstborn son. We are to look like we are part of this family. That is what it means, by the way, to be a Christian. The word Christian in the early Roman Empire meant little Christ. And the reason why the emperors would call Christians Christians is because he says these people act and look just like Jesus. I mean, they're so sacrificial. They're giving. There was a, a, an incident, if you look in Roman history, where there was like a black plague that was going around and everybody was living because they didn't want to die, but the only people that stayed behind were the Christians. They stayed behind to help those in the black and Some of them even died in the process. And at that moment, they were then titled Christians. These are little Christ. That's why God reconciled us, not to just get you off the hook so that you can go back doing whatever you want. He wants you to be like his son. He wants you to identify with a bigger picture than yourself. You are part of his family. And as a father, he wants you to follow the older brother. Be a little Christ, be above reproach, holy and blameless. But this also leads, finally, to a response to reconciliation. And this is now where it gets a little more practical, I think, for you guys. Because now you guys understand the gospel, and I think a lot of this might have been reviewed for you. You understand okay i understand how god reconciled us to christ i understand that we are to become more christ-like as time goes on i understand that we are you know walking in holiness until the day we see jesus face to face but how does that look give me a kind of tangible commandment what do you what do you want us to do in the meanwhile until we become more and more like christ well here's the key word look at verse 23. all right if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. The way we respond to the gospel, the way we respond to reconciliation, is to continue. To continue. In other words, just don't give up. He's not saying you have to sprint, you have to excel by leaps and bounds. He didn't say you have to be the top of your class or top of your company, all you have to do is continue. Just stay in the game, in other words. Don't disqualify yourself. Don't quit. Don't stop. Stay in the faith. If you notice the language he uses about continuing in the faith, he says stable and steadfast, not shifting. That is the language of a foundation of a building. Uh, language was used to describe to build a building so the idea is that there's a foundation that's been laid out called the gospel just stand on that foundation there's going to be other foundations that will be tempting stand on the foundation of success, stand on the foundation of relationship stand on the foundation of morality, stand on the foundation of yourself but he's saying as those foundations are being built around you in the culture, don't Bring the culture into this foundation. Stay in the hope of the gospel. That is the only foundation that will not crack. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who will keep you safe, who will guard you, who will secure you, who will bring you to the end, and who will get you to the point of becoming above reproach, just like Him. Some of you might be thinking at this point, I mean, I don't know if I could hold on. Like, I'm in a very hard and difficult season. Or it's been, I mean, this marriage has been very difficult. I don't know to keep going. I'm being part of this church. Working difficult. I'm being part of this job. I'm depressed. And I know you tell me to continue, but that's not the easy word to swallow. Continue. Because we all have breaking points, don't we? But some of you guys might have reached that breaking point. Some of you might in the future reach that breaking point. Where you are this close, this close for throwing it all away. I can't hold on anymore. And if that happens, what do you do? How do you keep holding on when you don't want to hold on? How do you keep staying on the foundation when you just want to give up? You know, I don't know your guys' background story, but what I do know, according to James 1, is that if you haven't already, you will go through trials. James 1 says all of us as Christians will go through trials. See, trials is the way, suffering is the way we actually become above reproach. Suffering is the way we become more like Christ. And so if I'm speaking to you while you're going through a trial, I know this is not an easy thing to hear just to continue. I say, oh, this is easy to suck it up. It's not. See, for me, 2016 was probably one of the most difficult years for me. It was like a constant year of trials. And it started when my second son Levi was born. Right after they delivered Levi, he turned blue. He couldn't breathe. And his lungs weren't like filling up the capacity. And so before I could even hold him, they had to take him to the, victory, the intensive care unit. After the first day, they couldn't give us any reassurance. All they said was there's something wrong with his lungs. There's probably, there's some fluid. We don't know, but he can't breathe on his own. And so he was all wired up on the ventilator. And, you know, I didn't want to show my wife because obviously she was already kind of shocked but in private I just start to pray God if you're gonna take away Levi please help me stay together for my life. I don't want to break down but if you're gonna keep on help me get through this just help me trust you those eight days were like the longest eight days of my life just waiting and hoping he will be okay a few months later my wife, Susan, was driving home. She was about a block away from her house. And she got T-boned by a Dodge Ram, speeding Dodge Ram that was going over 45 miles per hour. Now, just to give you a little background, I used to be an insurance adjuster, car insurance adjuster, before I went to seminary. And so for me, accidents are a dime a dozen. It doesn't really shock me or anything. But I found out she got in an accident. She was about a block away. And when I came to the accident scene, my heart just sunk. Because when I saw that car, I've never seen a car get hit that hard without a person either dying or being paralyzed for life. Because when you go above 35 miles per hour on a T-bone, 90% of the time the person dies or gets paralyzed. And so when they took Susan out of the car and she said she could not feel her legs and she couldn't walk, I just started to pray and I was like, God, I don't care about tomorrow, next week, just help me stay alive for today, just help me through today. Get me through today, and again, I internalized a lot of this. I want to show my wife, but when my friends would call and say, Oh, how's she doing? and how's that? You know, I was say, Yeah, yeah, she's okay. But when I got off the phone, I couldn't hold it in anymore. I didn't know what was gonna happen to her. She went, she had eight fractures in her pelvis bone. And we thought she had to go for surgery and you know, she might get paralyzed, but somehow the doctor said, Miraculously, all the bones were broken. This does affect walking. And she got out of the hospital the next day. Just when I thought it was over and things were going well, two weeks later I got a phone call that my father was diagnosed with advanced tongue cancer. And so it was at that point I was honestly this close of just leaving Dallas, going back to LA, being next to my dad. Because I don't know how long he had. I was this close to saying, why am I even here? What's the point of me preaching about? Is it really a matter at this point? When my life is falling apart. Looking back a year later, looking back, <clears throat> what I can tell you is this. I didn't get through that trial because I was somehow strong. Because I wasn't. If you saw me in my dark and private moments, I was like a baby. I couldn't hold to you. But what got me through that trial was not because i was holding on to jesus so strongly it's because he was holding on to me when i wanted to let go he wouldn't let go of me when i wanted to give up he wouldn't let me throw in the towel he was holding on to me because once you have been reconciled to god through jesus he never lets you go it doesn't matter how difficult it gets. It doesn't matter if you want to give up. He will not let you give up. He will not let you throw in the towel. He says, stay in the game. Continue. And even when you don't want to continue, I will make sure you continue. Because I am your shepherd. And I'm not letting you get off that cliff, Andrew. This is the way Jesus said it. He said, in, he said this in John. <clears throat> as when he's talking about himself as a shepherd. He said, "Not my shepherd, hear, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I think those are the greatest words you to can hear today. If you are in Christ, no one, nothing, not an accident, not a cancer, not a trip visit, not a death of a family member, nothing will take you out of the hands of Christ." And so all you have to do to respond to reconciliation is stay and continue. Don't give up. Life might look better. The pastures might look greener over there. But stay with your shepherd. Stay with your shepherd. And even if you think that you might want to leave, your shepherd will not let you go. You know what? One of the things I noticed that's very funny between my two sons is that around the first three months of their lives, when they were both really small, I noticed that every time I helped them and moved around a little bit or kind of got up, they'll kind of get a little scared and they'll grab onto my shirt sure. like this. And the reason why I think that's funny is because if you look at it from their perspective, I can understand. Oh, oh, I my fault. Okay, I'm safe now because I'm holding to daddy. But we all know If I just want like this, it doesn't matter how strong they are, they will fall. In other words, the reason why they're not falling is not because they are holding on to me so strongly. It's because I am holding on to them so strongly. And so if they want to hold on to me, that's fine. But I always want to reassure them, you can relax. You can relax because I'm not going to let you fall. And it's not dependent on how strong you hold on to me. See, oftentimes I think we think that, okay, I got to hold on. And it's based on my strength. And if I'm not strong, then God, I mean, I might might just fall away from God. When Jesus says no, I'm holding on to you. I'm the one holding on to you. So relax, don't be anxious. Things are not in in your control, they're in my control. Stop being a worry ward or type A crazy planner. I will plan your life. I am in control. I am your shepherd. I am holding on to you. Nobody will snatch you out of my hands. So relax. I know from your perspective you think it helps to be strong, to be independent, or to be better. But it doesn't. Because it doesn't depend on your grip on Jesus. Our faith depends on Jesus' grip on us. And whoever has been reconciled to the Father will never be So how do we respond to reconciliation? Paul says, you just got to continue. That's it. And that's a hard commandment when you go through trials. Just get through each day, one at a time. Well, if you look at verse 23, I want you to notice that Paul says the reason why we need to continue is not just because Jesus loves us, which he does, but it's because Jesus wants to paint a bigger picture through you. You see, your life is not about you. It's about this bigger picture He's trying to create through you. You're just a paintbrush. You're just one mosaic tile in a big you know, mosaic of beauty. And this is what He's trying to create through you. See, this is the response, in other words. If you have been reconciled to the Father, this is what He wants you to do now with others. Look at verse 23. The gospel which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. See, Paul reminds us that the gospel is not just by you and God. It's not just by you being to heaven. It's not just by you being forgiven. It's not even just about you being reconciled to the Father. The gospel is about seeing all of creation, every living being, bow at the name of Jesus. It is to see the kingdom of God come to earth. It is to see whales and presidents and waterfalls bow at the name of Jesus. And you know why God reconciled you? to himself so that you can be a messenger and a pastor of his kingdom. That's why he's not going to let go of you. That's why he's not going to let you give up. Because he's saying you have a bigger mission than than your happiness. Your life's not about your comfort and happiness. It's about my kingdom. It's about my gospel. So go. Tell others they can be reconciled to this king. Tell others there's hope for the hopeless. Tell others that no matter how sinful you have been, no matter how how horrible you have been, no matter what your family upbringing, no matter if no one else accepts you, a king is willing to accept you if you just get reconciled to to Him by faith. We are ambassadors of reconciliation. And once you have that bigger picture in mind, it will motivate you to keep continuing. You know, I talked to some um, Olympic athletes in college when I went to Cal Berkeley because for freshman year I was part of the crew team. I was part of the novice team. You know, We weren't that good. But some of the varsity guys were actually guys who end up going to the Olympics. And so I got to see on a daily basis how they worked out their work ethic. And I was, I was like, I couldn't believe, I mean they would not ever eat pizza once. I didn't see them eat pizza once. They never stayed up past 9 p.m. Even on a Friday night, when there's free alcohol at the you know, frats, they didn't go out. They slept at 9, woke up at 4, slept at 9, woke up at 4. They washed what they ate. They, could, they gained two pounds, they go on a sweat run. They were so diligent. And so I talked to one them and I was like, what gets you waking up? I'm tired of waking up at 4.30, I can't. I don't know how you continue. He says, I have a bigger picture in mind. See, I don't care about how we do this workout. I don't really care how we do in the next race. I don't even really care about the Pac-10 championship. My goal is the Olympics. I'm thinking about that gold medal. And so for me, I know whatever the pain and the process it takes to that bigger picture, I'm willing to go through it. When you have a bigger picture of mind." you will be willing to go through pain. You will continue. But if you don't have that bigger picture in mind, you will give up when it gets hard. And I think some of us, we aren't willing to continue because we forget the bigger picture. We're so focused on ourselves and our comfort in our lives, we forget this is about God and his kingdom. We get to be a part of that. He uses us, can you believe? I mean, he could have used rocks. He could have just had like clouds in the sky, have messages about the gospel. He could have just brought this cross together, like floating crosses everywhere. I mean, I'm sure he could have done anything he wanted, but he chooses to use broken sinners like you and me to have the opportunity to tell others the gospel and to watch people get reconciled to him. That is amazing. I'm sure the Apostle Paul of all people understood that he was a murderer. He killed the very people Jesus loved and God could transform him into the greatest missionary. Imagine what he could do with you if you'd be willing to continue and not give up. See, thinking of the bigger picture will make any activity, even if it seems unimportant, important. I used to work at the Apple store. So I used to make Apple I. First, there and there is one thing Apple does really well, they brainwash you about the company. You see, what they do every morning, even though I worked in retail, I'm just like wiping stuff down. You think it's unimportant, but what they do before you start your shit is they go, like, What is the mission of Apple? It's like you transform the world one computer at a time, whatever it was talking about. But anyway, I was a good worker, obviously, but there was like this mission statement, all of us have to chant together. And then we all have to cheer. So what are we gonna do today? Change the world. What are we gonna do today? Change the world, right? And then we go out and everybody's pumped up, like let me clean the laptop screens. (laughs) And it looks ridiculous because like, who cares about the laptop screen? But they get the big picture in your mind that even menial tasks become important now. You see, no matter what you're doing, it's important. And I'm not just saying that to make you feel better. It is, if you're doing it for the kingdom. Cleaning the floors is important for God's kingdom. Sending an invite through Facebook about your nurse church, but that's important for God's kingdom. Giving a little money to someone who's suffering and needs some money, that's important for God's kingdom. Telling people that you love them, that matters for God's kingdom. See, when you have a bigger picture in mind, Not only will you be willing to go through pain, but everything becomes important to you. Everything becomes important to you. Getting up a little bit earlier to read the word is important because you get to talk to your king that way. Praying becomes important because you get to hear from your king. Going to work becomes important because there are people who need to hear about this king. Going to church on Sundays is important because you get to worship with your fellow soldiers and encourage each other to go back out and serve this king. This is gospel living is to be reminded that you have been reconciled to God and now you have the call to help others be reconciled to him. I want to give you a real life living illustration from the Bible of how it looks to be transformed and to live for the gospel. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter four. John chapter four. John is uh, John chapter four is one of my favorite stories. If you guys don't know it's a story about a Samaritan and as Turner, let me just give you a little bit of background on what's going on in this scene here. Samaritans and Jews hated each other. Samaritans were half Assyrian, and half Jews. And so they were kind of seen as half breeds by the Jews. And the Jews hated them so much that even though they had to go through Samaria to have a direct shot to Jerusalem, a lot of the Jews would spend an extra two days just to avoid the Samaritan. So Samaritans were the lowest on the social ladder for the Jews. But Jesus decides to tell his disciples, we're going into Samaria. He's already breaking the rule right there. He's going into a land he shouldn't go to. And then what we see is that he talks to a Samaritan woman. That's a big deal. Rabbis weren't allowed to talk to women in public. Rabbis wouldn't have talked to their wives in public. It was seen as scandalous, but here's Jesus talking to a woman in public. But what we notice also in the story in John chapter four is that all of this happens at noon. Usually people go early in the morning before it gets hot to get water. This woman is at the well at noon the heat. Why is she doing that? Because she's trying to avoid the crowds. So we know she's holding some baggage. She doesn't want people to see her. She's going to the water when no one else is there in the middle of the day where it is the hottest. And here is this rabbi, Jesus, who comes, talks to a woman he shouldn't talk to. Ask her for a drink of water, which is a sign of fellowship, but no Jew would have done that with a Samaritan. And this woman, we find out, does have a simple past. Jesus says it. I know you've had five husbands, and you're on your six, and you're, it's not even your husband, you're just shacking up with him. So in that moment, if you look in the test, she was talking and talking, and then she gets silent. She gets quiet. Because now you're talking to someone who knows your business. And so I'm sure every part of her wants to run away. She probably feels uncomfortable. Why is this guy trying to talk to me and make me feel ashamed? What is he trying to do? But for the first time in her life, she meets a man who doesn't want to use her, use her body. She needs a man who just wants her. She needs a man who loves her unconditionally. And so Jesus, instead of shaming her, instead of saying, how dare you, you adulteress," He says, if you want living water, if you want to stop coming back to this well, I can give you that living water. In other words, if you want to stop feeling the shame of being out here and noon by yourself, I can give you. That day, she came into town with a water jar. Afterwards, after she talked to Jesus, she left the water jar. Why? Because her whole life has changed. Her purpose is not the same. It's not about getting that water jar and trying to get to the daily grind. Now she has met somebody that's given her a new purpose. Now she has met somebody who hasn't judged her for her past. Now she has met somebody who has empowered her with a greater and bigger picture. So what we see afterwards in John 4:29 is that instead of avoiding her hometown as she usually did, she went back to her very hometown. And instead of pretending about her past not existing, she actually opens up her past. And look at what she says to a group of the male leaders at the gate of the town. She says, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. And I'm sure they knew what she did. It's a small town. gossip gets around quickly. And she says this, can this be Christ's? Honest, anointed one, the king of the Jews, the one that we have been waiting for. Instead of avoiding the crowds, instead of hiding her shame, she opens up about her past. And she is used by Jesus to meet the leaders, to invite them to meet Jesus, and then we see the effects of the gospel. While this is going on, Jesus is eating with the disciples. And you know, Jesus, he's the type of person who just kind of goes into a lesson without warning you. So the disciples always get confused. So they're like, Jesus told the disciples, Go bring me lunch. And they go and they spend all day trying to bring lunch. They bring lunch back to them. Jesus says, I already ate lunch. You're like, what the heck? You spent all day getting lunch for you. And obviously Jesus is trying to teach a lesson here. Say, My food is not to spread, my food is to do the will of God. But Okay, and then so he explains it a little bit more. What do you mean your food or what energizes you is to do the will of God? And this is what Jesus says in verse 35. After the disciples are eating lunch, he tells them to look up at the harvest fields. And he says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. What's he talking about? That's a farming term. You see, farmers knew when the harvest was ready because when they're not ready, they'll be green. When they turn white, that means now is the time to harvest and pick the grain. And in the moment he tells them to look up at the harvest as white, the Samaritan men that the women talked to in their white robes were walking towards Jesus. It was as if Jesus, as a director's commentator, said, You know what energizes me? You know why I don't eat physical food? Because look at all these white harvests, these men who are coming who want to meet me. And how did he find out about Jesus? Through a Samaritan divorcee. The lowest person on the social ladder for the Jews. Jesus says, look. Look at those Samaritan men dressed in white. Look at the harvest walking towards you. Now is the time of harvest. The seeds have been sown by another person. That is not you. But you get to see the harvest. See, this is what happens when we live for the gospel. When we sow the gospel seeds around us, a harvest of people will come out of it. Maybe you don't get to see it. But people will see it Or maybe some of you get to see the harvest But you weren't part of the sowing But whether you're part of the sowing Or whether you're part of the harvest Jesus says when you stop living for yourself When you stop getting so concerned about your shameful past When you stop looking down on yourself Thinking you're unimportant If you're willing to let God use you And to just start opening your mouth And sharing your life with other people A harvest will come A gospel harvest will come you know, in Eastern countries, they'll have professional weavers who will just work on this large tapestry. But what happened oftentimes is that these tapestries take so long to make, a lot of these weavers kind of die in the process with the unfinished. And so before they start these tapestry, they have the whole design built out so that if someone dies, the next person in line can keep weaving the tapestry. See, the idea is that they have a long, big picture. I'm just one part. I'm just doing a few rows of tapestry and then I die. You know what, the gospel, what it means to live for the gospel, according to Paul, it means that you are one of many people alive as part of the gospel industry. You are just one mosaic tile. Maybe you see a big hog, maybe you don't, but that's irrelevant if you have the bigger picture of mind, So wherever you are, sow the seeds. Wherever you are, be teachable, humble, be willing to be used by God. Wherever you are, you can be used to contribute to the bigger picture we call God's kingdom. And you might not see the big picture today, but one day when you get to heaven, you will get to see how you got to play a part in this beautiful tapestry called God's kingdom, where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, according to Revelation 5, will be praising Jesus for eternity. In all languages, from all cultures, people will be praising Jesus. And how is that picture possible when people like the Samaritan woman are willing to live with a new purpose called the gospel? Let me close by asking you this question. I know some of us here might excuse ourselves from living for the gospel because we think, you know, I'm not qualified. I'm not that articulate. I'm not that successful. So how in the world will God use me? Listen, if God can use a Samaritan woman, I can use anybody in this room. anybody. You know what the crazy thing about John chapter four is? That Samaritan town was the only town that responded to Jesus with the gospel. Galilee didn't respond to Jesus. The other Jewish town didn't respond to Jesus. Even Jesus' hometown didn't respond to Jesus. But the town that responded to Jesus were the enemies of Jesus' family. They were the enemies of the Jews. And why did the whole town respond to Jesus? Because I'm an adulterer woman. That is how the gospel works. The most unlikely person can bring the most unlikely result. And so before you start giving your excuse, I can't do it, I'm not this, I'm not this. Listen, God can use unlikely to make things you will never dream of. God can use murderers and make them into missionaries. God can use children to change adults even. God can use you if you are willing to be used. If you are willing to continue the faith and live with the gospel centered life. Let me also ask you this question. Where are the Samarias in your life? I know some of you might have people in your life that you've kind of written off. That person is like 20. They've never to come to the gospel. They never believe their soul. Blah, wow, this. Or maybe there's are zip codes and area codes where you're just like, ah, that, that, that city's going to hell. It's all burning up. They're so bad. Or maybe there's a group of people you just think, oh gosh, God cannot save homosexuals. God cannot save God cannot save them And you've just written people off Listen, if God can save Samaritans God can save anyone And so never give up hope On the people in your life The people in your community Where are the Samarias in your town? Listen, you don't have to be the smartest You don't have to be the most successful All you have to do is continue just continue. And each day you go to work, the gospel center prayers, the gospel center living, the gospel center conversation. Every time you come to church, you minister. You build a church up in unity, truth, maturity, and love. And every time you lose focus, you refocus back. Jesus. And every time you get that paycheck, you think about God's kingdom first and how you can leverage your first kingdom. Do you see how the gospel affects every aspect of life? It's not just a Sunday thing, it's a life thing. It's for the rest of your life, the gospel must stay in focus. And when you focus on the gospel, you can be in the line of the spiritual woman. Another person that can bring a whole town to Jesus Another person who brings her whole family to Jesus. Another person who brings a bunch of co-workers to Jesus. She wasn't the smartest, she wasn't theologically trained, but she was willing to continue even in her shame. Listen, some of you might be dealing with some baggage from past sins. What I want to encourage you with is to tell you that you can come to Jesus and be reconciled forever. You don't have to earn reconciliation. You don't have to keep trying to prove your worth to God. He has already reconciled Himself to you if you are willing to grab onto the cross. So don't let people define you by your past failures anymore. Don't let people define you by your present occupation. But know that you are a child of God and you are in the hands of Jesus If you come by faith and He will never let go of you and you can be secure even when things go wrong in your life. You have been reconciled. But also, you have been reconciled so that others can be Who are people in your lives that you know that needs to be reconciled to Jesus? And what part can you play in this bigger picture? Yes, sometimes it might be painful. You might get rejected. Sometimes people might be fun of you. Sometimes it might not go well. But the only way you're willing to go through pain is when you have a bigger picture in mind. The only way that you keep getting up each morning without deterrence is when you have that bigger picture in mind. Like, and so whenever you get together on Sundays, let your leaders motivate you, let the Gospel motivate you to remember, what are you going to do today? Change the world. What are you going to do today? Change the world. So go wipe the streets. Start with the little things. Do your homework. Respect your parents. Don't cut off people, flick them off, right? I mean, I don't know. Just start with little things. Change the world. Change the world. The way people are changed are by the little steps we take to Be holy, blameless, and with every church. I pray that shining star, man, if you could just picture with me a bigger picture for a second. Can you imagine a shining star that every single one of you guys starts to live like Jesus? Start to talk to Samaritans. Can you imagine the explosion of grace that will happen? Can you imagine what people would see if they saw former drug dealers or gangsters or the marginalized coming to your chapel and worshiping you? Can you imagine when people from different skin colors and ethnic backgrounds are coming to worship together? Can you imagine the statement and how the whole Washington, D.C. area will be affected if shining stars started to live the way Paul says you should live? Remember that big picture now. Start working towards it together. Come to church to work, go to work to be the church. Use your money wisely, manage it well, be generous, and these simple things can make all difference in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for for reconciliation. Lord, I know for some of us here, we might be still trying to justify ourselves through our religious activity. Maybe some of us here are still private and don't want to talk about our sinful past because we think that it will disqualify us from you. I pray that you will remind us and refresh our minds once again with the gospel. That we have been reconciled to you through the body of Christ. And Lord, for all of us here at Shining Star, help us to respond to the gospel, to continue in the faith, to not give up even when it gets difficult, to keep serving the body, to keep working at work, to keep giving our money, to keep doing the little things that will make an eternal impact. Help us and empower us and I pray that we would think about all the different areas in our lives, the areas and the people we are avoiding, the areas and the people we have given up on, and to give us a heart of compassion to reach out the way Christ reached us. Lord, I pray that a Shining Star will be a testament of a gospel centered church, that every single person will be so focused on the gospel that they will live in such a way that can't be explained away by the world, that there will be an explosion of harvest that happens because everyone is committed to the gospel. I pray that you will make that true here at Shawnee Star. Please be with the leaders, Pastor David, Pastor James, Jesse, and all the other leaders as you continue to lead this body. And also be with the members as they lovingly submit and follow for your kingdom and your glory. We thank you again. we praise you, Son.